people want it to be different than any other job. You got to work it to make it worth it, just like anything else. There's a lot of uh, vitriol amongst drivers, but they're the ones that just don't want to work very hard and always get great fares. Something called the gig economy is changing Canada's workforce. I'm Nikki Reitmeyer, and this is Why. In the world of inner-city app-driven food delivery, business never stops. It is already a pretty crowded field in Vancouver. Lazy Meals, Click Dishes, and a host of others all battling for your eyes on their app. A new app is expanding to Alberta in hopes you'll turn to your neighbours when you need a helping hand. Ride-sharing companies like Uber, Lyft, and now Tapcar trying to come into Winnipeg are an eye-opener. Move over Uber, another American-based ride-sharing service is on its way to Toronto. Users can now request a ride on demand in the Lyft app. The app is called Adam Helps. It lets you post jobs you need done, and people who are able to help and want to make a little extra cash can respond. Kid.ca has been up and running since February. People can use it to find a babysitter all over Montreal and even Ottawa. Are these companies, are they here to stay? The sharing economy in general, it's it's not going anywhere? It's not going anywhere. Sometimes it's called the gig economy, like G-I-G, gig economy. Sometimes it's called the shared economy. But whatever you want to call it, this new tech-based labor force, it's really starting to make an impact in Canada. And it's making an impact on the way that Canadians work. Companies that you'd associate with the gig economy are companies like Uber, Airbnb, DoorDash, and like dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of others. Companies like that are creating new jobs for Canadians. But just how good are these jobs? Are these jobs that'll benefit Canadian workers in the long run? Jeff Mason is a human rights lawyer from Vancouver, B.C. You reached out to us via email because you wanted to share some information more about the gig economy. And as I was reading your email, I thought, this is a thing that I participate in. I participate in the gig economy, yet I don't actually know what the gig economy is. So I guess the short answer is that there's, there isn't a singular definition that applies to every company within the gig economy. But Sort of a crude definition would be uh, businesses that enter into short-term contracts for sort of one-off services or gigs. Um, so like an Uber? An Uber, okay. Airbnb, DoorDash. Um, those are classic examples of uh, businesses within the gig economy. Okay, so let's say that I want to participate in the gig economy, but not just as a consumer, as an employee or as a worker. How do I get a job with one of these companies? What's that process? Yeah, so uh, full disclosure, I have not been a Uber driver or done anything in the gig economy, so I, I can't speak from a first-hand account. But, but I kind of feel like it starts with downloading an app. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's the one thing I can say is it's incredibly simple. And again, one of the reasons why these companies are, you're seeing such a proliferation of them is because the technology is making it incredibly easy. It's, you know, it really comes down to fundamentally downloading an app, setting up an account, and sometimes there's a, a very uh, rudimentary application or screening process. By and large, it is much more parsed and, and much simpler um, and far less thorough than a, a traditional application process for an employment job. 
that's got to be really appealing to people who don't want to print off a whole bunch of resumes and walk around the mall handing them out for hours on end. Yeah, it's 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 a great way to sort of test the water, see what you might like, but try your hand at multiple different things at the same time. It sort of creates a lot of fluidity in in the gig economy market. You can you know, go from one job to another week to week, and you can really find something that you really love. That's a unique element of the gig economy. And something else that I think is is a benefit of it. You know, we're speaking a lot about the concerns of the gig economy, but there's a lot of value that it adds. And there's, you know, there's a lot of things that people like about it and like about the independent contractor nature of it. One of which is what you just mentioned, that, you know, people have a much easier time getting these positions and going from, from job to job. When it comes to who these people are, the demographics of a gig economy worker, I imagine that it's surprisingly diverse. It's probably not yeah. just someone who is you know, struggling for employment and thus they've taken up this job by downloading the app, as we talked about. But I'm sure there's people all over the social economic scale. So you really see gig economy workers of all ages, all ethnicities, all demographics, um, all types of backgrounds. Interestingly, though, you know, I think we tend to associate the gig economy with sort of a more of a millennial enterprise that we're sort of turning our back on traditional employment and, uh, and and trying this, it actually, some data suggests it's exactly the opposite, that you actually see older demographics that are more comfortable with it and, and more millennials are actually more, more concerned about this transition towards uh, precarious gig economy work and actually believe that there's more of an entitlement to, to traditional employment. So I found that pretty counterintuitive when I first heard about that. That's really interesting. So it's the older demographic, the people like my parents or your parents who are more willing to work for these types of companies than those entitled millennials that we hear so much about. Well, that's what at least some data suggests. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if we can chalk that up to the age or the particular generation, but if it is the generation, I think that should be pretty concerning because, you know, millennials are going to be the generation of the future. Um, so if, you know, a small portion of gig economy workers are uh, concerned about working in the gig economy right now, as time goes on, that number is only going to increase in theory, right? Does it seem as though there's going to be a limit on the very existence of the gig economy if they're not willing to participate in it? I wouldn't really be as concerned about sort of a, a cap or a limit to it, because I think if history has shown us anything, it's that you know, people have to work. And uh, if, if you don't want to, to do a job, that's not necessarily going to prohibit you from actually doing it. I don't think that we're necessarily going to see, you know, people just refusing to work in the gig economy. But I think the concern is you're going to see more people who do not want to work in the gig economy who are going to be essentially forced to be working within it. You know, one of the the issues that comes alive about the gig economy is that uh, workers within it are independent contractors. Right. And so that's, that's sort of a, a significant issue because there's been, become a bit of a decline of traditional employment-based positions. So in one sense, the rise of the gig economy is sort of helping out fill that gap of, of losing traditional employment-based positions. But one of the concerns is that workers within it are independent contractors, uh, by and large, as opposed to employees. So what's the difference between being an independent contractor and being an employee? Independent contractors, in theory, are their own businesses. So you have control over how you perform your services. You have control over, by and large, when you perform your services, as long as they get completed within a certain amount of time. You have uh, a better chance of profit and risk of loss, things like that. 
But one of the main distinctions is that you do not uh, receive traditional employment-based protections. So you wouldn't have any severance entitlements. You wouldn't have any uh, employment insurance contributions or CPP contributions, things like that. It seems much more risky than being a traditional employee. Absolutely, it, it is, and that's that's actually one of the uh, one of the factors that courts look at in in determining whether or not someone is an independent contractor. And when we're talking about risk, is there more risk of getting screwed around by some of these new gig economy companies? if you are an independent contractor? Because I feel like in the news, we hear stories about discontent, let's say Uber drivers, for example. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. That's, uh, that's I think, one of the main concerns that uh, a lot of employment lawyers have about the rise of the gig economy is that there is this element of risk and vulnerability for a lot of workers within the gig economy for a whole number of reasons. I think it goes without saying that Uber is one of the most well-known gig economy companies. So to find out what it's actually like to work for a company like Uber, John, who's the other producer on this podcast, went on Reddit and Facebook to track down Uber drivers who were willing to talk to us about what it's like to work for a controversial company like Uber. Because... Some drivers seem to love their jobs, and other drivers end up in the news headlines because of their major complaints with the way that Uber treats them. Hello. So that's Sherry Lee. She's originally from New York, but she's been living in Perth, Australia for the past six years. Our taxi situation here was so bad, so Uber offered an alternative. Sherry, you've only been working for Uber for a few months, um, and they've had a lot of bad press about how they, they treat their drivers. So what do you think of having Uber as a boss? They're not really an employer here, so that's the issue. That's part of the issue. They're, we're, all, we're all independent contractors. We have to pay um, GST um, on the full fare, even though, obviously, we haven't collected it. So it's, it's difficult to make money. Plus, you have to pay over 25% to Uber. So, and then you, of course, you're running your own private vehicle. <laughs> so it's, it's not easy to make money. Yeah, Sherry really didn't seem too crazy about working with Uber. The fact that drivers aren't technically employees is actually a pretty contentious issue because it means they're not entitled to basic protections like minimum wage. So when I called Sean, who's a driver in Denver, Colorado, I asked him. Hello. Hi, is this Sean? Sean, do you like working for Uber? Uh, not now that they got their CEO out and there's actually business-minded people, yes. Since that guy from Expedia came in, uh, he's altered the app so it's better for riders because I'm a rider too, and it's better for drivers. I hear a lot of stuff about complaints and this and that, but that's because people want it to be different than any other job. It's got you, you got to work it to make it worth it, uh, just like anything else. There's a lot of uh, vitriol amongst drivers. But they're the ones that just don't want to work very hard and always get great fares. I got, you know, I work eight, ten hours a day. If you work it, it's worth it. Hey, so that's a really important perspective then. So you, I'm assuming, used Uber as a rider before you used it as a driver, correct? Oh, yeah, a lot. So then being a rider, what made you want to start driving with Uber? I, got, I was a stay-at-home dad for two years, and it was uh, the easiest thing for me to get into. And I thought that it would be very short-lived, but it turned out to be a very viable job that gave me a lot of opportunity to not only make money, but to meet people and enjoy my work. 
Let's go back to human rights lawyer Jeff Mason. When we were talking to him a few moments ago, we were discussing risk from an employee's rights perspective. Risk isn't just a function of sort of the rise of the gig economy. It's it's a result also of a of the decline of traditional employment-based jobs. I think that's really interesting, the idea that traditional employment is starting to decline. Because if we think about our parents' generation, especially, you know, I think about my dad. He was a company man. He was with the same company for, for 40 years. And, you know, he worked that job until retirement. And in our generation... People are working many different jobs or they're switching careers. And now I guess it seems like they're switching even the model or type of employment that they have. Yeah, no, there's there's without a doubt, you know, a sea change going on in terms of uh, of how individuals work these days. And I know I don't want to sort of be the uh, the bear of bad news here. I mean, there's been transitions like this throughout history, and, and we've generally done a, a good job of being able to manage and adapt to that. Um, but... Yeah, one of the main concerns going forward is that, you know, with the increase in automation, there doesn't really seem to be a great sort of theory of how we're going to adapt to that just yet. So the traditional employment that you're talking about, your father's generation and my father's generation is is certainly without a doubt changing. Um, The concern is that, you know, I don't really know if we have a great alternative in place right now. The trend of moving towards these sort of gig economy jobs and independent contractor positions, I don't know if that's going to be sort of a, a sufficient replacement. Let's just pause and dig deeper there for a moment, because I think that Jeff said something really interesting a couple seconds ago, that this isn't the first time in history that workers have gone through some kind of technology-based transition, and nor is it the first time where there's been some concerns associated with that. Certainly the idea of workers potentially being exploited at the onset of new technology is nothing new. Kyle Jackson is a history professor at Kwantlen Polytechnic University in British Columbia. A great example of this comes from the history of electricity. Um, In the early 1900s, the electrification of of major cities, um, the street lighting, these kinds of things are often celebrated in grand style. But not everyone is happy with this progress. In India, which is under imperial control of the British Raj at the time, you have British cotton factories, and then you add cheap electricity, and working hours can increase. So before, Indian workers had this natural defense against exploitation, or at least some forms of exploitation, and then at least the sun would go down. But now, you get the potential for lots of light, lots of plentiful, cheap electric light, and they can be forced to work later into the night. So you actually see strikes in 1905 and then in 1908, with workers rallying around the slogan, we want no electric light. So here you see technology isn't always seen, or new technology isn't always seen as a good thing from the worker's perspective. Then there's Henry Ford, whose new technology applied in the capitalist world had a hand, oddly, in the creation of communism. Henry Ford is probably the best example of this kind of new technologies changing working regimes. Um, He sort of figured out that you could use mechanized conveyors and pop along auto frames along a track where each worker would just perform one very simplified, very repetitious task. The idea here is taking one worker and applying one task. This is the classic kind of division of labor idea. By the 1920s, Henry Ford is rolling off a finished car off his assembly line every 10 seconds. 
uh, history is unpredictable, and this kind of process feeds into brand new ideas. For example, Karl Marx noticing that as the division of labor increases, as labor is simplified, labor becomes more unsatisfying in, in Marx's terms. What Karl Marx and others noticed is that this repetitive machine model of sucked all of the joy out of labor. So why are more people getting into the gig economy or to these sort of alternative jobs like being independent contractors uh, as opposed to staying in those traditional employment roles? I mean, I was reading a stat that said by the year 2020, which is really darn close, 40 percent of American workers will be independent contractors. So is it sort of a matter of, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Are these gig economy companies popping up and people are moving in that direction because they want to work for these businesses? Or are these companies able to pop up because people are discontent with the current model of employment and they want more freedom, I guess, as an independent contractor? I, I think it's probably more the former. I think really the two, uh, the two main trends that explain the rise of it are the decrease in traditional employment-based positions. So people are sort of being more forced into these independent contractor-driven positions. But the gig economy, uh, the, the types of businesses within it, are really a function of increases in technology, uh, the internet, ubiquity of Wi-Fi everywhere. I mean, you can uh, pretty much anyone with a, a smartphone and an internet connection can can take a stab at a business now. And there's very little overhead, so you can take multiple stabs at at trying to get something to work. So you're getting, there's sort of a proliferation of these types of companies because of the infrastructure that's in place. And there's a bit of a decline in traditional rules. So I think that people are more so being pushed into these positions. So people are being pushed into the gig economy. But like you said, not everybody is happy about that. And I imagine that as a human rights lawyer, that leaves you with a couple concerns. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a number of concerns. One of the sort of the largest issues right now is an issue of misclassification. So as I said, it's classifying someone as a an employee or an independent contractor is not as simple as just you know tagging them as an employee or an independent contractor. It's it's a question of law as to whether or not you are. So you can be misclassified, and that's going through courts throughout the world, including Canada right now. Um, but I think the more interesting issue from my perspective is regardless of whether or not at law you, you should be considered an independent contractor or an employee, should you not be entitled to some sort of employee benefits? Because that to me is, is, is really the bigger concern is that, you know, you take uh, you know, DoorDash drivers, they might actually pass the legal test for being an independent contractor. But I think there's a good case to be made that because of those economic trends we spoke about earlier, that they should still be entitled to some sort of protections, that the, the old model of being an independent contractor as being really a matter of choice um, doesn't really apply as much anymore. You know, independent contractors are be looking more and more like employees. You're getting more and more of an inequality of bargaining power. You're getting more and more individuals who are feeling like they're forced to take on these positions. And if that provided a rationale for extending employee protections decades ago, there's no reason in principle why it shouldn't now. Um, and I'd say that's probably one of the more common concerns I hear from gig economy workers is frustration about not getting these basic protections. Where do we stand now? Because it sounds like to the one extreme, the gig economy could be regulated by the government to a point where it suffocates it. The other extreme being that the gig economy is a wild west where there's basically no workers' rights whatsoever. 
Where in between do we stand now? That's a, a great way of sort of framing the, the issue. Right now, I would say it probably leans more towards the Wild West. But the good thing, I think, is that it's finally getting some attention. And it's, you know, it's a very hot topic, so it's hard to avoid politically. The challenge that I think a lot of regulators are realizing is just how hard it is to address the issue. As we were saying earlier, you know, how, how do you strike that balance uh, between not uh, scaring these companies away, but also adequately protecting your workers. That's that's just a really tough problem to solve. So if you're a, if you're a consumer living here in the Wild West, why should you care about how your skip the dishes delivery guy is treated by the company that he he works for? Uh, well, I mean, aside from just uh, caring about other people who are, um, you humans. know, <laughs> humans, yeah, um, I guess, you know, the short answer, it, it could be them today and you tomorrow. These are, are not just stagnant economic circumstances. These are growing trends. So, you know, right now, I think about 20 to 30 percent uh, workers um, are, are independent contractors or gig economy workers, but that number is set to increase substantially. So, you know, if you have any, uh, any concern about your own welfare, I think that there's, there's a case to be made that this is an issue that you should be focusing on to, to really even just reduce your own risk in the future. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me, Nikki. Well, looks like history is bound to repeat itself with yet another technological transition that workers, companies and governments will have to adapt to. What do you think? Is the gig economy a threat to workers' rights or the alternative model to traditional employment that some Canadians have been waiting for? This is Why is produced by John O'Dowd and me, Nikki Reitmeyer. Now, you can find us on Twitter at This Is Why or send us an email with your comments, your questions, maybe even a story idea. This is Why at CuriousCast.ca. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you get your favorite podcasts or wherever you're listening to this right now and give us a rating and a review. That's the quickest way to spread the good word about This Is Why. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next Friday.